The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, if you can't preach after that, you're sunk. That's all I got to say. You're sunk. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Psalm 50 this morning. As you're doing that, what a joy it is to be able to look out this morning and see old friends that haven't seen in years, in fact. It seems like they all decided to come the same week. See the Harkness family in the back and the Johnson family here in the middle. Uh, Daniel Kim right over here and his bride, Diana. It's a pleasure to see you all. Psalm 50 this morning. I'm going to read the entire text to you as we prepare our hearts to, to study God's Word. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. And around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Hear, O people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and in all that moves in the field, it's mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world in all its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. Mark this thing, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. But the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. It's the word of the Lord. As we've made our way through the Psalms in these last uh, weeks, we've tried to choose a selection of Psalms 
that sort of carried different themes from week to week. It would have been impossible for us to do the entire Psalter in a series. Well, I guess it wouldn't have been impossible. It just would have taken a long time. But our goal was to give you a taste of the flavor of what the Psalms are like. And we couldn't never end a study of the Psalms without choosing at least one Psalm, like Psalm 50, whose theme is the judgment of God. It's a theme that we find in a number of the Psalms, and it is indeed the theme of this Psalm. We encounter this Psalm, this Psalm of Judgment, and I suspect just on the casual reading of it this morning, you realize that the theme of this Psalm is a sobering theme. This is not a light and happy theme. It is not a fun and joyful theme. It is not a theme where lots of jokes and frivolity are sort of appropriate. It is a, it is a theme that is sobering. And it is a theme that, as we work our way through the text of this psalm, should in some way shake us to the very core of who we are as people who stand before a living God. The theme of judgment runs all throughout the scriptures, so it's no surprise that we find it in the psalms. The scriptures are very clear from start to finish that there is a God and that he created all things. That he is the one who made all things. He is the one who owns all things. He is the one who sustains all things. And he is the one who has defined right and wrong. He is the one who has made clear what he expects of his creation. And every human being that has ever been created stands before him accountable for how we live and for how we behave. The scriptures are also clear that there is coming a day in which every single human being that has ever breathed the fresh air of earth will stand before this creator, give account for his life, and be judged. On that day, he will be the judge, and his judgment will be absolutely final. There will be no court of appeal. There will be no human witnesses called. Just human beings before their maker, accountable for their lives. Divine judgment in Scripture really comes in at least two sorts of flavors. We could break it down into more, but just as a summary statement, when we run across the judgment of God in Scripture, we run across sort of two categories of divine judgment. The first we could just simply call temporal judgment. That is to say, judgment that God renders in the give and take of life, here and now. There are times when the people whom God has created rebel against Him and God chooses to intervene in their lives at the moment with some sort of judgment upon their behavior in the form of discipline. We see this individually in the text of Scripture. Several examples. We could look to the Old Testament. David, who sinned egregiously against the Lord, a man after God's own heart. We know his story. He sins, and there are immediate judgments of God upon his actions. The death of a son, the loss of a throne, God's judgment in David's life for his sin. Temporal judgment, immediate judgment. We see it nationally as we trek through the Old Testament with Israel, as God's people corporately rebel against him and turn away from him and chase after other gods. There are moments where God simply has enough, and he intervenes temporally in those moments, and he brings judgment upon Israel, his people. It often looked in the Old Testament like causing them to become enslaved to a foreign nation, a pagan nation, to lose a battle, the loss of life, the loss of freedom, the loss of worship. 
That's temporal sorts of judgment that come in the give and take of life. And we see that throughout the text of Scripture. And then the second category is the idea that there's going to be a final judgment. A judgment at the end of time where, as I mentioned a moment ago, where all men stand accountable before the Lord. It will be the ultimate and final judgment that will determine the destiny of men's souls. Everything about eternity will hang in the balance in those moments. The eternal destiny of the human soul hangs in the balance in those moments. And every human soul will hear one of two things. Away from me, for I never knew you. Or enter into your rest, beloved. The final judgment. One author said this, The whole business which we have in this world is this, to prepare to meet God. There is a sense in which that is the theme of our lives here. That our lives lived here on planet earth under heaven. Our lives lived in a sense every day in preparation to one day meet God face to face. To give an account for our lives. And really, at least partially, the meaning of the text of scripture is intended to prepare us and help us along that cause. To be prepared to meet him. God has graciously given him, given us the treasure of his word to prepare us to meet him one day, to help us, to encourage us. So as we think about this psalm, we're not thinking about trivial things. We're not talking about small matters. We're talking about things of serious gravity, things that matter most. This theme of judgment is both sobering on the one hand, and it is, in a sense, horrifying on the other. And if we fail to catch that, then we fail to understand who our Creator is. Sobering and it's horrifying when we consider who God is and what He has said and the fact that He always makes good on everything that He says. In this psalm, we're given really a snapshot of the judgment of God, and we're given it in very, very vivid terminology, as you'll see as we work our way through. For just a note of background, this is a psalm of Asaph. We see that in verse 1. You note that in your Bible if you're reading along. A psalm of Asaph. We did Psalm 73 a number of weeks ago, also a psalm of Asaph. Um, the Psalms of Asaph, attributed to Asaph, begin in 73, and uh, really I think there's 10 or 11 of them, and they all sort of fall in place after 73, except for number 50, which oddly enough is completely separated from the others for reasons unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to pretty much everybody else as well. Um, it's not important to really know who Asaph is for the context of this psalm, except it's just helpful for us to remember that Asaph was a musician. He was appointed by David to lead the worship in the temple. So he was one who was acquainted with the worship of God's people because he was a worship leader among God's people. So he was one who could have very quickly and easily taken a temperature for the character of the worship that was going on amongst God's people. And so he's one who speaks with authority when he writes about the character of the people's worship. And in this psalm, we find a setting that is really remarkable. You probably caught it as we read along. The setting for the whole psalm is a courtroom. Did you catch that? It's a courtroom setting. The whole psalm begins that way. It begins with a, the imagery of a courtroom and the imagery of the judge entering into the chamber. It's as though somebody, the herald of the universe, is saying, All rise, the judge is entering the room. 
And the judge enters the room. And the judge calls forth witnesses. And the judge levels out accusations against the defendants. And the, and the judge threatens with judgments. And that is the entire context. We see it in the very beginning of this text. The trial is taking place. The judge is going to preside. And witnesses are going to be called. Verses 1 through 6, we see that. The very beginning, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. And he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. A little further down, he calls the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. What's striking about the first part of this text is this imagery of God. This imagery of God we cannot overlook. It is, it is though God the majestic one enters the courtroom. Just an interpretive note, you'll see in the very first verse, the mighty one, God the Lord. In the, in the Hebrew, are, there are three different names for God sort of put in a row there to refer to him. In the English, it, they try to give it to us by saying mighty one, God and Lord as translations of El, Elohim and Jehovah. But it's not significant to go into that in depth other than to say it has the effect of a herald sort of announcing the majesty, the triplicate majesty of the one who's entering the room. It magnifies the might and the power and the majesty of the one who's coming and who's entering. And this first section tells us an awful lot about what the judge is like. What is this one, this judge who enters the room? What is he like and what is he doing? We were first told he's the judge, right? He's the judge who's coming to judge. As mentioned before, he's the creator. He's the one who holds all men accountable and the one who, uh, before whom we will all stand and be judged. This is a theme all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 711. Can't get a slurpee there. I just don't know why I thought of that. But 711. God is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 75, 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. Psalm 96, 13. Before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in His faithfulness. The God who's coming is a judge who will judge people in righteousness, in equity, but in truth. Not only is he the judge, but we're told he's righteous. The heavens declare his righteousness. Simply put, this judge who's entering the courtroom is pure. He is perfectly holy in all of his ways. There is no flaw or error in him at all. Every single thing that he does is right. Every single thing that he says is right. And all of his judgments are exactly right. And no one can bring into question what he does. He's righteous. But beyond those things, we see that he is indescribably awesome. And that, that description is wholly inadequate for what we see here. But I couldn't think of anything better. Maybe you can think of something better, and I'll put it in my notes for another day. Indescribably awesome. I hate the word awesome in our culture because it's used for everything from pizza to movies and everything else. And we mean different things by it. But when I say God is indescribably awesome, I'm not talking about that kind of awesome. I'm talking about staggering and awe-inspiring kind of awesome. 
How do we see this in the text? Well, it tells us that before him as he comes is a devouring fire and around him a mighty tempest. It is the picture of a blazing fire that consumes and a picture of a hurricane. The image we have here of God is a God who comes in a blazing fire and a God who comes in a hurricane. What a great week for this text, right? Two remarkably vivid examples this week. How many of you spent Monday staring up at the sky with cardboard glasses on your face? Yeah? I'm with you on that. It's pretty awesome, wasn't it, that eclipse? To be able to look up and to see uh, the, the moon cross in front of the sun and eclipse it for that minute of totality. It was really impressive and really remarkable. But you heard like I did every day, A million times, don't look at it because it'll burn your eyeballs out, right? You heard that. Wear the glasses. Why? Because the sun is a powerful entity that even from the distance of 93 million miles, it can burn your eyes. It is an awesome thing, the sun. We don't look at it because even at this distance, it can damage your eyes. It is an awesome star. Imagine what it would do if you could get closer to it. If you had the, the most sophisticated spacesuit that NASA has today, you could get, theoretically, within 3 million miles of the moon. I mean, of the sun. Theoretically. We're 93 million miles away. If you had the spacesuit on and there were no other factors involved, you could theoretically get within 3 million miles. Then you would heat up to over 248 degrees and you would instantly combust. I don't recommend trying that or saying that as a, a, like a bucket list item. But even at three million miles, it would instantly consume anything unprotected. It's an awesome thing to think about the sun. The power, the sheer power of a moon, excuse me, of a sun that burns at 9,900 degrees Fahrenheit is an awesome thing. Even from 93 million miles away, it is an awesome thing. Imagine if the sun is that awesome. What is the one like who made it? I watched some dear lady on the Weather Channel this week. Uh, I was getting my car fixed during the beginning of the eclipse, and I was sitting in the lobby, and the TV was on the Weather Channel about the time that that eclipse was hitting Oregon. And this this dear weather lady on the Weather Channel, bless her heart, she's you know she's just breathless with anticipation, you know, for this thing to happen, and it happens, and she just bursts into tears. And I mean, I'm thinking, okay, it's incredible, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure like that. But it struck me that this dear woman was just struck with the sheer awesome magnificence of that event. And the thought crossed my mind, I have no idea who she is or anything about her, but the thought crossed my mind, I wonder if she would even flinch at the consideration of the one who made that thing happen and the one who holds those things in orbit. He is so much more awesome than the event. But here God is described to us, as a, as, a, as a God who before him goes a devouring fire like the sun. And then it says he around him is a mighty tempest. Just this, in the last day or so, a Category 4 hurricane, Hurricane Harvey, landed in Texas. And we continue to pray for those dear folks who are dealing with the devastation of a Category 4 storm with 130 mile per hour winds that just slammed into the coastline of Texas. We, we in Charleston know a little bit about hurricanes, don't we? 
And if you've ever lived through one, you understand the awesome power that is associated with a hurricane. If you've ever looked out your window and seen trees bent sideways at the power of sheer force of the power of the wind, you understand that a hurricane is an awesome thing. And here our God is described as one who before him goes a devouring fire and around him is a tempest like a hurricane. If a hurricane is awesome and a a devouring fire is awesome, what must be the one before whom those things go? He's even more devastating. Listen to some of the other descriptions of God in the Psalms. Psalm 18, verse 7 and following. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations, also the mountains, trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and a devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and the earth and he came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, a canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. The foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord. The blast of the breath of your nostrils. What happens inside your soul when you read that? Psalm 97, 2 through 5. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. My friends, this is terrifying imagery of God. And we dare not breeze over it or explain it away, or minimize it. Our God is incredibly awesome. Incredibly awesome. We are very comfortable thinking about God as a God of mercy, and a God of love, and a God of grace, and a God of kindness, a God who is gracious and forgiving and loving and merciful and kind. And all of those things make up the character of who God is. But we are less comfortable thinking about a God who is awesome. A God who is terrifying. A God whose power melts the mountains and makes the entire earth quake. We dare not allow our image of the mercy and love and grace of God eclipse, I'll use that word this week, our understanding of His awesomeness and His might and His power and His fearsomeness. He is an awesome God. The reason this is important is because the whole context of this psalm is about worship. And I want to suggest to you that how we understand God will shape everything about how we approach Him and how we worship Him. How we understand God What we think of when we think of God will shape everything about how we approach Him and how we go about worshiping Him. 
If you were to visit in a church on any given Sunday, anywhere, if you're paying attention to what's going on, it will not take you very long to to come to an understanding of how that congregation thinks about God if you worship with them. You simply ask the question, how do they approach Him in worship? What is the characteristic of the corporate approach to God? And what is characteristic of how they worship Him? Is their worship flippant and silly and casual and irreverent? If so, then that tells you something about how they understand God. Is there a sense of awe? A sense of wonder? A sense of respect? A sense of honor? And that will tell you something about how they understand their God. Do they approach God like they approach other men? Or do they approach Him like He is altogether different? How we see Him will shape how we approach Him and how we worship Him. And we don't have time to trace this all throughout, but just a couple examples from Scripture of the reality that when people encounter God's presence, they were never flippant, casual, or silly. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking because of the presence of of the Lord, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. The same thing. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. John writes, When I saw him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It was a devastating encounter. A.W. Tozer writes, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion is ever greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. It goes on to say, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just challenging you this morning to re-examine how you see God. And to make sure that your picture of Him does not in some way eclipse His majesty, power, and might. Because if it does, it will corrupt your worship. Well, what is he doing? The psalmist tells us he's doing several things. Lots of verbs here in the beginning. It says he comes. It says he speaks. It says he calls witnesses. He comes. He doesn't remain distant. God comes near to his people in judgment. God isn't a God who sits far away and throws lightning bolts of judgment from afar. No, he's a God who comes toward his people in order to judge them. He calls them to account in his very presence. He comes to them. It says he speaks to them. Now, as we work through the psalm, we find that God has been very keenly aware of their corrupted worship for a very long time and has kept silent. We'll see that. But now he comes and now he speaks. It's as though God says, I've had enough. I can't stomach it anymore. I can no longer hold my tongue. Now I'm speaking and you'll listen. 
His patience has run out. They're, they're, it's as though their sinful worship is so egregious that he can't hold his tongue any longer. And so he speaks. And what he says is devastating. He calls witnesses. You saw that. He speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting. Of the he, he calls, verse 4, to the heavens above and to the earth as witnesses. Now, we may look at that and you wonder, what's that all about? What's he calling to the heavens and the earth about? Well, all of this psalm wraps around covenant language. It all goes back to the initial covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 24 and 26, I want to show you this just quickly so that you catch the connection. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 24 and 26, um, Moses is revealing to the people what God has said on Mount, Mount Sinai. He's given them the law and he's explaining to them what is required of them. And here's what he says. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, here's what's going to happen. Tell us, David. There we go. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long on it, but will be utterly utterly destroyed. But you notice he says, I'm calling witnesses at the covenant here. And who are the witnesses? He calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses of the covenant. Fast forward into history to Psalm 50 when God returns and he meets them in judgment. Once again, he calls the very same witnesses who saw the covenant to now evaluate how they've lived it. And there is no denying that the witnesses, the heaven and the earth, will say, we saw the promise you made at Sinai and now we'll testify to what you've done since then. You see? He calls the same witnesses and there is no escaping the witnesses. And he judges. That is the judge. That's what he's like. And that's what he's come to do. But then he lays out two charges against the defendants. And they are both charges related to their worship. The reality is God has been watching from a distance the worship of his people. And he is enraged at what he sees going on under the guise of worship of him. He is enraged. He is infuriated by it to the point where he comes to judge it in the moment. And there are two particular problems with the people's worship that he exposes, two charges that he levels against the people uh, related to their worship. And the first charge is that they're engaged in ritualistic worship, that their worship has become nothing more than ritual. Verses 7 through 13, Hear, O my people, I will speak, O Israel. I testify against you. I am God, your God. It's not for your sacrifices that I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. That's important to note there. It's not that they're not worshiping. He's not, he's not rebuking them for neglecting worship. They're continually worshiping. They're continually going to the temple. They're continually doing all these things. But there's a problem. I won't accept a bull from your house or goats for your fo- from your folds. Their, their worship is unacceptable. And he goes on to talk about the beasts of the forest being mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves is mine. If you read through that section, see how many times the Lord says mine. Right? Mine, 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 mine. Over and over again, reminding him that he owns everything. A couple of things to note here about this first charge that he levels. 
Number one, it is leveled against God's people. This is not a gathering of the world. This is not a gathering of the lost. This is a gathering of people who have identified with the Lord, who are actively performing worship in His name. That's important for the context. These are God's people to whom judgment is coming. God has a problem with His people. And I want you to note also, boy, I wish we had time for this this morning, but it is a charge that is a corporate charge against the corporate body, and it signifies the the significance and the necessity of gathered corporate worship. This is not a gathering of individuals who are standing individually accountable. It is a gathering of the entire body of the people of God, and they are being held held accountable as a group. Now, granted, there are things that our individuals are doing particularly that contribute to the problem. But the accountability is a corporate accountability because worship is a corporate event and a corporate endeavor. We live in a a sort of an evangelical world in our culture at the moment where everything is driven toward the individual, where even the the, the majority of of the, the worship gatherings of the church that meet this morning are all centered around really sort of the individualism that marks our culture. The music is marked primarily by the pronouns I, me, my, and mine. The, the lights are completely blackened on the congregation so that we don't see anybody else, so that we're blocked out from the reality that anyone else is around us. And the whole idea is to, to focus the attention on the idea that it's just me and God here doing business. That is not the picture of corporate worship in the Scriptures. There is a sense in which we worship the Lord privately and individually in our own lives. But it's a different deal altogether when we gather with God's people. And we're commanded in the New Testament and the Old Testament to never neglect that responsibility. Because what happens is when God's people gather together, there's a synergy and there's something unique that happens together that never could happen individually on our own. The gathered worship of the body of Christ is pictured as being the climax of a week of personal worship on our own. And we don't have any more time to trace that than that. But it's a corporate charge, and it's a charge against God's people. And the problem is not that they've neglected gathered worship. That's not the problem. They've continued to sacrifice. They're gathering on a regular basis. They're offering sacrifices on a regular basis. They're offering uh, truth to be taught on a regular basis. They're going through all of the externals regularly. The charge is not that they're gathering. The charge is that their worship is marked by rotten, stinking, bad motives. And here's the bottom line problem. They have come to believe that their worship is for God's benefit, not their own. They've come to believe in their hearts that what they're doing somehow fills a need that God has. They've, they've come to understand the whole interaction of corporate worship as being people gathering before God to fill in Him some deficiency. They have come to believe that their worship meets some need of God. that they are coming to contribute something to Him that He does not have. That they are coming to meet some need that He has in His celestial life that only they can meet. And because of that, their worship had become cold, it had become heartless, it had become formal, it had become ritualistic and purely external divorced from a heart that's engaged. They were doing nothing but going through the motions as though somehow God's needs were being met when they came and checked off the box of going through the ritual. 
came and they gathered and they went through the motions and they walked away saying, okay, God, okay, God's now happy with me because I did it. In a subtle sense, it's a manipulation. It's this attitude that says, if I come and give God what he needs, then he's now obligated to give me what? What I need. If I come and give God what he wants, then now I'm going to turn around and he's going to give me what I want. It's a subtle human manipulation that is absolutely drenched in human pride. That exalts man and radically demotes God. So their worship is not driven by a heart of gratitude, a heart of humility, a heart of dependence. It's merely a heartless external ritual, and it does nothing but insult God. The moment you and I begin to think that we're doing God a favor by our worship, we dishonor Him, and we slide into a religion of works righteousness. Did you catch that? The moment we begin to think we're doing God some favor by worshiping Him. We're in very, very deep weeds. And God makes it clear with a stunning rebuke that must have snapped them into reality. You see what he says to them? Two truths that expose their defamation of his character and their demotion of his majesty. He says to them essentially two things in very vivid imagery. He says, number one, I have no needs. And number two, I own everything. You stupid people, do you not get it? I have no needs. I don't get hungry. You think you're going to come and burn your animal sacrifices and offer food on my altar because I'm hungry and I need your food? Are you kidding me, God says? I own the food. I own the food chain. I own everything related to the food. I made the food. It's mine. The cattle, they're mine. The birds, they're mine. Everything that exists is mine. I, I own everything and I have absolutely no needs. I have no needs. I am completely and utterly self-sufficient. You feel nothing in my character by your worship. I totally exist in complete self-sufficiency without any contribution from you. I have no needs. And secondarily, even more penetratingly, if I did have needs, he says, I wouldn't ask you. Did you get that? If I had needs, I wouldn't come to you. I wouldn't pick up the phone and call you. If I had needs, I'd ask myself, because I'm the one who owns everything, and you own nothing. How are you going to help me when you don't own anything? You have nothing to give me that I don't already own. The foolishness of thinking that somehow we have something that belongs to us, that doesn't belong to God, that we can give to Him in the, in the form of worship, that somehow meets a need of His, is just, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. We don't own anything. Anything that we actually have in this world is simply something that belongs to God that He's entrusted to us to to be trustees of, stewards of, as long as He sees fit to let us have it. The Old Testament sacrifices, all of that was never... God has never derived nourishment from any sacrifice. That wasn't what the Old Testament system of worship was set up for. That wasn't ever what the sacrifices were about. The whole sacrificial worship system of the Old Testament was not intended to meet some need in God. It was intended to meet critical needs in the heart of man. It was intended to draw men to a regular point in time where they could acknowledge their own sin and be drawn to repentance against the Lord. The whole point of the burning sacrifice was to, re- to remind them of the serious nature of their sin and 
incredible consequences of their sin, that their sin warranted death. It was to remind them how important sin was and to draw them to repentance. It was, it was to provide a, a moment in their life, a regular moment, where they would gather and express gratitude to God for His provision and deliverance, where they would celebrate communion with the God who was near to them. It was all about the needs of men, not ever a contribution to the needs of God. And because they had turned that thing upside down and made it into something else, God says, I will not accept your worship. I will not accept it. It's an insult to me, is what he says. Their view had made God dependent on them. And that is an insult to the living God who depends on no one. C.S. Lewis writes, if you come to God dutifully offering him the reward of your fellowship instead of thirsting after the reward of his fellowship, then you exalt yourself above God as his benefactor and you belittle him as a needy beneficiary. And that is evil. And indeed it is. What's the remedy for that kind of a corruption of worship? Well, he tells us, to cultivate gratitude. Verses 14 and 15, he says, here's the remedy. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Gratitude is the foundation of all true worship. A heart of gratitude is the foundation of all true worship. Because a heart of gratitude recognizes at the outset that God has no needs that I meet, but I have all sorts of needs that only He can meet. And I come before Him not to contribute something to Him, but because I have a heart that's exploding out of gratitude for what He has done for me. It's the foundation of all true worship. It recognizes that God needs nothing from me, but I need everything from Him. It recognizes that every good gift in my life is from Him. Every possession, every relationship, every career, every blessing, every piece of health, every piece of my family, every friend that I have. And on top of all these things, it recognizes the greatest gift I have is His salvation of my eternal soul, which I could never gain on my own. Heart of gratitude and utter dependence upon His grace and mercy. It drives humility, it drives dependence and it provides the fuel for heartfelt worship. And they had missed it altogether. There's a second charge we see in the second half of this text. And it's quite obvious. Verse 16 and following. And the real out. You know what? I'm not going to read it again. I'll just give you some examples for time's sake. Here's the issue in the second part. It's not ritualistic worship. It's hypocritical worship. They're worshiping the Lord with the gathered body of believers. And they're living like hell the rest of the week. That's the reality. He calls them the wicked in verse 16. To the wicked, God says, the first thing he says, what right have you to recite my statutes and take my covenant on your lips? What right do you have to gather with my people and speak my name? What right do you have to even speak my covenant when you're living the way you're living? And he gives a list of all the things that they're doing. Publicly worshiping God and putting on the show of religion, but privately indulging in lives of unbridled sin. Ignoring His Word, theft, sexual immorality. He focuses most of His time on sins related to unrestrained tongues. That's something to ponder. He has a whole lot more to say about the sin of the tongue than He does adultery or theft. I don't know if there's any correlation there, but it's important at least to note. 
Some of these are violations of the basic Ten Commandments, but they're all violations of God's righteousness. And here's the problem. These people are coming to worship the Lord, and they're living in unbridled sin all throughout the week, and they're feeling absolutely no embarrassment about coming and publicly mouthing the Word of God in song and in prayer and bowing before His Word with no sense of repentance, no sense of shame at all. And they thought they were getting away with it. You notice he says these things you've done and I've been silent. These things I've done and you've done it and I've been silent. That's God's way of saying, you thought that you're getting away with this because I didn't zap you the moment you did it. Or the second time you did it. Or the 100th time you did it. You thought, you thought, you thought that you were getting away with it. But we find... They thought because they were getting away with it that he didn't care about it. Do you get that? He thought that because God didn't judge them instantly that God obviously didn't care about their sin and their hypocrisy. But you and I need to understand that God hates hypocritical worship. He despises hypocritical worship. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and following, You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. The kind of worship that honors the God with the lips, but a heart that is in utter rebellion against Him, is a worthless, vain, empty, useless waste of time. Do you get that? We, we have this conception that, is, that if we just show up for church, that somehow that earns us brownie points with the Lord. But you need to understand this morning, there's no such system as that. Falsified worship that is backed up by a hypocritical life that's living in unbridled sin and open rebellion against the Lord is fake worship, it's hypocritical worship, and it's useless worship that insults God. He says something devastating here in this section. He says, here's another part of your problem. You thought that I was one like yourself. You you think of me just like another man. You think when I say something, I won't make good on it like men. You think when I tell you what's right and what's wrong that I'm not serious about it. You thought I was just like another man. But I'm not like another man. You see, our hypocrisy can fool other people. But it will never fool our God. Never. Well, what's the remedy for this kind of corruption of worship, this hypocritical worship? Well, the answer is in verses 14 and 15 and 23. It's to cultivate obedience, a heart of obedience. It's to openly confess our sin and rebellion. To draw near to God in repentance, seeking His forgiveness. Turning away from our sin and racing towards righteousness in our lives. God does not expect perfection from His people, but He expects the pursuit of righteousness. Understand that. He doesn't expect perfection. He understands we're fallen people who sin. That's not the issue here. The issue isn't that God is saying you need to be perfect in order to approach me in worship. What He's saying is you can't propose to worship me while living in unbridled, unaddressed trajectory of sin in your life. That's what he's saying. So the way is, perform your vows to the Most High. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Last thing I want to point out, verse 22. Because when I read this, it makes the hair stand up on my arms. 
Verse 22 at the end of this rebuke, he says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. I don't know that there is a more frightening verse in the entire canon of Scripture than Psalm 50:22. To hear the God of the universe say, you better address your corrupt worship because if you don't, I will tear you apart and there will be nobody that can deliver you from me. Let that sink into your soul for a second. When you consider that God does not make idle threats, when you consider that God does not, does not make threats that He is not absolutely willing and able to make good on, put Psalm 50:22 in your soul and in your heart. Particularly when you remember at the beginning of this psalm, the whole message is addressed to people who are identified as His people, who identify themselves with Him, who regularly worship Him. Grasp that for a moment. How do we respond to all this? Well, the good news is the psalm ends with God not actually ripping anybody apart yet. Praise the Lord, right? Whoo! Thank the Lord, right? But it's a warning, isn't it? And thus far, the end has not come where God makes good on His threats. That means there's time for repentance and there's time for faith. There's good in this psalm. He says, those who order their way rightly and offer worship with gratitude and thanksgiving, he says, I'm blessed by that. I will honor that and I will save that soul. Three things to do this morning. This is how you respond. This is how this psalm should affect you. It should cause you and me to evaluate or examine our view of God. How is it that we think of Him? What thoughts lead the way when we think of God? Are they small thoughts or are they big thoughts? Are they thoughts that reduce God to something like another human being? Do we think of Him like we think of others? Or do we understand the magnificence of His majesty, the indescribable awesomeness, the the hurricane awesomeness, the, the fireball awesomeness of God, the fact that He's a consuming fire? If this morning our view of God is too small, we need to repent of that. And we need to pray, God, open my eyes to the fullness of who You are, that I might worship You rightly. The second thing is we need to examine our attitude towards worship. How is it that we approach God? What is, what is the, the attitude of our hearts when we gather with God's people? How do we approach Him? And what is it that we think we're accomplishing when we worship Him? Do we come before God as though we have something to offer Him that fills some need in His life? Do we come before Him and offer our worship just simply to manipulate Him to do something that we want for ourselves? Or is our worship fueled by gratitude and dependence and thanksgiving and trust in Him. And thirdly, we examine the status of our souls. The threats in this psalm are real. And our God is one who will ultimately judge the wicked. And He will judge them in a fearsome and awful way. If you want to read the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you get some vivid imagery of what that looks like. And it's awful. But the God who is a consuming fire is also the God who has come near to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, Emmanuel, God with us. And He has come near to us in a Son who died on a cross for the very rebellion that God is rebuking in this psalm. 
And there is time for repentance. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never come to that moment or that season in your life where you have recognized that you are a sinner who has rebelled against your Creator and there are awful things in store for you if your sin isn't dealt with, if you haven't come to that place in your life where you recognize that your only hope is that the very Son of God, the perfectly righteous one, died on a cross and shed His blood in your place to pay the awful penalty for your sin, that by placing your faith in Him and what He's accomplished for you on the cross, you might be forgiven and granted eternal life. If you haven't come to that point in your life, then right now is the moment. You stand before a mighty and awesome God, and you stand accountable. And your only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Run to Him this morning. Trust in Him today, I pray. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. Almighty God, we come before you. And we confess together an all too often tiny, small, and insignificant image of who you really are. We pray, O oh God, this morning that through this psalm, that through your word, you would reveal in our hearts who you truly are and that we would see you as a God who is awesome and mighty and indescribably awesome. That you would expand our view of your power and might and majesty. That seeing you that way would drive our worship. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us in these moments to examine our own approach to worship because it says something about how we think of you. Do we come before you, O Lord, in flippant, casual, silly ways? Do we come thinking we contribute something to you? Do we come hypocritically putting on a show for everybody else while living, showing in our real lives what we truly love and that's our unbridled sin? Draw us to repentance this morning. We pray, O oh God, for our church as a congregation at Grace on the Ashley, that were you to come before us as our judge, you wouldn't level these charges against us because our worship would be something other than that. May our worship explode from hearts filled with thanksgiving and gratitude, hearts that know we bring nothing to you, but we are utterly dependent on you for everything. Hearts that overflow with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving at who you are and what you've done for us, particularly in saving us by the blood of your Son. Draw us to respond to you in these quiet moments as we need to, together and alone. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.